So this morning, as we uh, continue through Philippians, we are going to be talking about overcoming relationship issues and struggles, conflict uh, in our relationships. Um, last weekend, we went away with some friends on a staycation, and we had a, a great chat about um, resolving conflict, mainly within the context of marriage. And I said I had a very simple strategy. Uh, you know, when Janine and I have an argument uh, or a disagreement about something, especially at night, uh, what I do is, or what we do is, we lie with our backs to each other on the furthest si- uh, ends of our king-size bed, and what I do is I just simply wait there as long as it takes until Janine realizes that she was wrong, and uh, I wait for her to roll over and give me a big hug and kiss and say how sorry she, she is. Uh, but usually what happens is 12 o'clock rolls around, one o'clock rolls around and I get this epiphany, oh, wait a minute, it was me. And so I have to humbly then roll over and apologize to her. Um, so it hasn't quite worked as yet, but it really doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're married or not married, whether you're uh, single or married or young or old or your ethnicity, your faith, your lack of faith, if you are breathing, you will have relationship issues, relationship struggles. Uh, Maybe some of you have some conflict at work uh, because someone took credit for something you did or credit for something someone else did, uh, or the workplace, you know, it can be such a a competitive environment uh, which which becomes like such fertile ground for for conflict and issues to arise. Uh, Maybe you're experiencing some conflict in your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you know, uh, you want to get married first, but they want to maybe move in first to kind of see if it's all going to work, but it's not quite what you believe, or or maybe there's conflict within your marriage, you know, conflict about not spending enough time together, that's, you know, someone's, one part of, one spouse is more distracted than the other, or conflict about where to spend the money, or maybe there's conflict around the children or conflict with a particular child, whether it be rebelliousness of sorts or whatever it might be. And then let's not forget about church-related conflict. You know, as, we, as I said, as we continue through the book of Philippians, we're beginning to see that there, there were some relationship issues. There were some factions within the church. Two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul was, in, was encouraging them to be united, to have one mind, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not strive against each other. And maybe the reason why you are here at sunrise is because maybe you experienced some conflict um, at another church, or you've experienced issues here at sunrise. You know, someone, maybe something someone said, either intentionally or, or unintentionally, and it, it, it hurt you. Or maybe you have some unmet, unmet expectations, and you, you feel angry, you feel frustrated about that. And we can go on and on about these uh, various forms of relationships that we have and the various forms of, of conflict and, and issues that can arise within them. And many reasons can cause relationship conflict, but here's what I'm willing to bet, that at the bottom of them all, nicely disguised, is the issue of pride, is the issue of self-centeredness. Now, pride can fuel conflict in two ways. It can either be the instigator of the issue, it can either be the direct cause of the conflict, you know, because of my self-centeredness, because of my pride, I then said this, or I did that, and it it just caused this whole thing to erupt. Or secondly, my pride can obstruct the resolution of the conflict. Well, it's, you know, it's not my fault. They they caused the issue, they caused the the debacle. I'm just gonna wait until they apologize. I'm not gonna forgive them until I see that they are truly sorry for what they did or I'm just, I'm done with this relationship and I'm walking away. So what do we do? 
if pride can be both the instigator of the conflict and the detractor of reconciliation, then we have to fight it with its opposite virtue. We have to fight it with its opposite virtue. So here's what we're proposing, we'll put it on the screen. To truly overcome just about any relationship issue, whether it's in marriage, whether it's with your group of friends, within family, with your children, colleagues, whatever it might be, we must be humble. I know what you're thinking. Really, Jason? I gave up Seven Mile Beach to come and, and hear that. Could, could you be any more Christian-y than that? But here's my prayer for us this morning, that as we look at God's word together, as we look at Philippians chapter two, he will show us that humility is one of the greatest weapons, one of the greatest ways that we can overcome just about any relationship struggle or conflict. So, won't you read the passage with me? Philippians chapter two, uh, just the first five verses and then we'll dive in. It says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's speaking about unity, which we had a look at two weeks ago. So we kind of dive in from verse three, which he goes on and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but here we go, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's how we're gonna tackle it. Three points this morning. We overcome relationship struggles, firstly, by being humble. We're gonna lay the foundation by looking at what hum humility is. And then number two, by paying attention to the interests of others. We can kind of say that's one of the fruits of humility. And then lastly, we'll look at the secret by looking to Jesus. So today is kind of part one of humility, and next week we're gonna look at uh, a truly perfect model of humility. So here we go, point number one, we overcome relationship struggles by being humble. What we're gonna do in these first two points, this one and the next one, is pull out as much, as many things as we possibly can out of verses three and four and try and understand what humility is. In fact, we're gonna see both sides of the coin, what humility is and, and what humility is not. Sometimes it's easier to understand what something is by looking at what it is not. Okay, so have a look at verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So he starts off by telling us what humility is not. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now think about that for a second. Do absolutely nothing. Not, not, not some things or, or you know, just when you go to church or when you're serving at church in, a, in some sort of capacity, that's when you do nothing out of selfish ambition. No, no, Paul is saying that this is to encapsulate who we are that we do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is to encapsulate who we are, and so therefore it affects how we do things and what we do. Nothing we do must be done with selfish ambition, ambition that is all about me, myself, and I. Because as soon as we do that, listen, as soon as we begin to do things and relate to people out of selfish ambition, everything and everyone else becomes a competitor. Everything becomes a competition. And this can be so dangerous and destructive for our relationships. Even our families and our friends become competitors. Because they say, you know, I wanna climb the corporate ladder, I wanna do this, I wanna become the best at that. But then my family is competing for my time. 
They're competing for my affections and they're competing for my focus because that's what I wanna do. They're making me divided in my thinking. They're making me divided in my ambition. We see this too in, in churches. Churches competing with each other. Ministries within a church competing with each other. I was part of a theological school that uh, planted a church in Johannesburg in South Africa many, many years ago. And we were a whole bunch of young guys, you know, loving Jesus, loving our theological studies, dreaming of preaching one day, dreaming of leading a church one day. And, but when it was decided that as a school we were gonna plant a church and that there would be positions of leadership available and there would be specific roles that would be available, suddenly we went from camaraderie to competition. Nothing was overtly said, but you could just kind of feel the, the atmosphere change in our relationships. We went from encouraging each other in our studies to outdoing each other in our studies. We went from encouraging each other in our sermon practicing to outdoing each other in our sermon preaching classes. Our senior pastor described us as a, as a bunch of young bulls in an enclosure, kind of butting heads to, to kind of establish some sort of hierarchy. One scholar explains selfish ambition like this. He says, it's the kind of self-seeking that leads to quarreling, hassling, haggling, fighting, arguing, and contending. And he says, by the way, it is listed in Galatians 5.20 as a work of the flesh. He says, it's not the work of the spirit. It's the work of the flesh. It's the work of the sinful nature. Because I was thinking, well, surely there are appropriate times where, where you can have selfish ambition. And Paul says, no, not if it's a character trait of your flesh, not if it's a character trait of your sinful nature, because he says, remember, hey, if you, if you sow to the flesh, you're gonna reap destruction. The next undesirable trait that helps us understand humility is conceit. He says, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul says. And so obviously this is very similar to selfish ambition, but this drills down a little bit deeper into our motives as to why we want to do something because it refers to vain glory. Some older translations still interpret that word that way, vain glory or empty glory, empty conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit, they go hand in hand because selfish ambition is all about achieving something so that you can then experience the glory of achieving it. You know, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be the best at that so that everyone will marvel at me. Everyone will marvel at my skills. You see that? We have to examine our motives. To examine our motives, we have to ask the why factor. I wanna achieve this, I wanna be the best at that, but why? The answer to that question will tell us whether our, our ambition is selfish and whether we're seeking vain glory. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. As Christians, we can be ambitious. Paul was incredibly ambitious. He says in Romans 15 that his ambition is to go preach the gospel in Spain. Well, why, Paul? You wanna go build a, a mega church there in Spain? You wanna have multi-sites and you wanna have like, you know, a billion followers on Twitter or whatever it might be? Have a look at what he says in Romans 15 verse 20. He says, and thus I make it my ambition, he's ambitious, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He says, hey, no. I don't wanna compete with another brother. I wanna take the gospel 
where it has never been taken before, where no one has even heard the name of Jesus for the sake of their salvation and for the extension of God's kingdom. Let me quickly slip this into. Be wary. We need to be wary of always wanting or needing to be in control. Now you feel you always need to be in control in a particular situation because you need it to be done your way or you wanna make sure that the end result is, is according to your way. And sure, yes, maybe at times it's, uh, your way is the best way because you, know, you, you have uh, the know-how, you have the necessary skills, you've got the experience. But other times, maybe it's out of selfish ambition. And that affects our relationships because others won't learn if, we, if we're constantly doing it, if we're constantly doing it according to our way. And if we're constantly needing to be in control and we constantly have these particular standards, everyone else around us will feel condemned because they will feel that they will never meet your standards, our standards of perfection. And so that causes issues in our relationships. And so in terms of overcoming relationship issues and struggles, selfish ambition and vainglory is only going to add fuel to those flames. They're going to cause factions. They're going to cause competition that will ultimately destroy any form of unity in any kind of relationship. Now what we see in the rest of verse 3 is the contrast Or we can say, here comes the the replacement principle. Here comes the flip side of the, the same coin. He says, but in humility, here's what we need to do. Count others more significant than yourselves. The way to overcome selfish ambition, the way to overcome vainglory is to consider or count others as more important than yourself, he says. You see that word then? It's a comparison word. It's like, I like chocolate cake more than Carrot cake, because it's vegetable, there shouldn't be a cake. But this is what we do, right? We're we're constantly sizing others up, we're we're constantly comparing ourselves to others so as to to determine the, the level of relationship, or whether we should be in relationship with this person. Now, they don't they don't really look like me. They don't they don't speak my language. They're not of the same socioeconomic level. And so we're busy determining whether, we, whether they are more important or more significant or whether we are more important or significant than them. Or we're determining whether our point of view is more significant than their point of view. And so Paul is saying, hey, when we do the comparison thing, not if, but when we do it, then as Christians, our conclusion must always be they are more important than me. We are to hold others in high esteem, esteem or regard others as more significant than ourselves. Now listen, it doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people. It doesn't mean that we're doormats, that people just walk all over us. But there is a big difference in disagreeing with someone from a place of selfish ambition as opposed to a place of esteeming them highly, esteeming them as more important than ourselves. But Paul says the only way we can do this, the only way we can do this is by being in humility. You see that? It says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You know what's so fascinating about that word humility? Uh, it, it, it was never used in a positive way in the first century context. 
The culture of the day used it to, to negatively describe someone. It was used to describe the lowest of the low in that particular day and age, in that particular culture, which most probably you refer to the slaves. And then Christianity comes along and redeems it to the point where we now consider it as one of our greatest virtues, one of our greatest character traits. The great Jonathan Edwards describes humility like this. He says, true humility is not putting ourselves down, right? It's not about degrading ourselves, loathing ourselves. He says, true humility is, is not putting ourselves down, but rather lifting others up. He says, if we concentrate on lifting up others, putting down ourselves will take care of itself. He says, as we go through life exalting Christ and others, then genuine humility will be inevitable. But he says, if we exalt ourselves, then God will take care of our humiliation, for he promises to humble the proud. He says, it's much less painful to do it the first way. Reminds me of a story I read about a young Scottish preacher who walked proudly into the pulpit to preach his first sermon. Uh, the article says he had a brilliant mind and, and a good education, and he was confident of himself as he faced his first congregation. But the longer he preached, the more aware everyone was that the Lord was not in the wind, that he was doing this in his own strength. He finished his message quickly and came down from the pulpit with his head bowed low, his pride now gone. Afterward, one of the members said to him, if you had gone into the pulpit the way you came down, you might have come down from the pulpit the way you went up. God humbles us. So here's another way to think about our humility. I heard this uh, earlier this week and I was really convicted about it, so I thought I'd just kind of share the love with everyone. So in order to consider ourselves uh, humble, in order to consider someone else as more important or more significant than ourselves. It's, it's not about gathering as, uh, as much information as you can about this particular person so as to then make a decision how, in, in terms of how you're gonna relate to them. Rather, it's about knowing the condition of our own hearts. We'll never know what is truly going on in each, other, in, in each other's hearts, but we certainly will know what's going on in our own. We know the judgmental thoughts that we have. We know the lustful thoughts that we have. We know even when we are being hypocrites, when we are relating with someone. Because we don't know for sure what is going on in someone else's heart, but because we will always know what's going on in our own hearts, we can then begin to treat others as more important than ourselves. We can begin to have a more sober perspective on our own lives. Because people could have looked at the Apostle Paul and, and admired him by saying, oh, Paul, man, you, you're amazing. You, you're, one of, you're probably the best Christian to have walked this planet other than Jesus. I mean, look at all the disciples that you made. Look at all the, the churches that you planted. I mean, look how much of the New Testament you wrote. Look how you, you, you were, uh, suffered for the sake of the gospel, how you persevered through all of that suffering. You're amazing, Paul. You know what he said about himself? Look at this, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Oh, Paul, you mean when you were, doing, when you were like the Saul guy, you know, when you were going around arresting all the Christians and persecuting, you mean then, right? He goes, no, this is in the present tense. Of whom I am 
the foremost. And this is not false humility. This also doesn't mean that he was going around sinning left, right, and center. Simply saying he knew what was going on in his own heart. He knew the thoughts he was thinking, and therefore in comparison with a very, very holy God, he knew he was the chief of sinners. And it's because of this introspective knowledge that he could then consider others as more significant or more important than himself. He was humbled, listen, he was humbled by true self-knowledge. Just imagine this with me for a moment. Imagine the impact that perspective would have on our relationships. What would happen if we all became aware of that in our time of fellowship after the service? You know, as we're as we having coffee and we, we're chatting with someone and, and we begin to just look around the lobby area, around the foyer, and, and we look at everyone and we, we suddenly become aware of the truth. Hey, everyone here is of more significance than me. Everyone here is of incredible value. And then we do what Edward said. We don't belittle our souls, but we have a sober judgment on, on ourselves. But what we do is we, we then rather make others feel significant. As you interact with people, you make them feel like they are the most important person in that moment. And we don't walk into the situation, we don't walk into the conversation going, I'm going to be the most humblest person in this group. Then we've lost the plot already. But we go into the conversation thinking, hey, how can I make this person the most, feel like they're the most important person right now, most valued right now? That then is the fruit of humility, which then leads directly into the next way we overcome relationship issues. Number two, by paying attention to each other's interests. Paul says it like this in verse four. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, I remember growing up on a, on a farm most of my life, which uh, involved a lot of target shooting. I love target shooting. My dad was a, a national target shooter back in his day, and I remember him teaching me how to shoot. And uh, he would walk to the far end of a field, and he would put a target down there, and he'd come back and teach me how to lie down and how to hold the rifle, tell me to close my one eye. The only eye that needed to be open was the one looking down the, the, through the sights to, the, to the, um, the target in the far distance. And he'd teach me these, these breathing techniques to get my breathing right. And then he'd tell me just to kind of zone out from all other distractions. Don't, don't be distracted by the, the heat of the sun bearing down on my back. Don't be distracted by my dog trying to get my attention or the bird that suddenly flew past. But just with a one eye open, completely fixated in lining the gun up with the target in the far distance. And then when I was ready, I was to squeeze the trigger and hit the target. And that's what that word look means in the original Greek there. It's, the, the, it's where we get our English word scope from, as in the scope on, on the top of a gun or, or a microscope or a telescope. It's not a casual glance, but a, a concentrated and fixated gaze. It's like whatever you're looking at has your undivided attention. Nothing else distracts you. But look at what he's saying. If we're gonna have great unified relationships within our church family, within our family, with our spouses, with our friends, colleagues, whatever it might be, then he says we can't have that kind of self-absorbed gaze. And it's written in the present continuous tense, which means this, this 
can't be a habit of ours. This can't become a, habit, a, a lifestyle where we're completely fixated on our own interests. It gets even better because the, the verb tense, it tells us it's an imperative. In other words, it's a command. He's commanding us, don't only be completely absorbed with your own interests. And the word interest is a very generic term. It can mean anything. It's kind of like a filler word. You know, you kind of like fill in the blank there. So don't be consumed, all consumed or zeroed in on, on, on your job, on your hobbies, on your agenda, on your own viewpoint, on your looks, on your ministry, on your emotional needs. But do you see what he's saying? He's not saying that we shouldn't zero in on our own interests, but we need to come to the realization that our world is not the only world, that we're part of a community, a larger community, we're part of a, a faith family. You're, you're part of a friendship circle. You're part of a, your own family. You're, you're married. And your friends and your colleagues and your spouse, they all have interests. They all have needs themselves. So he's saying, take that same meaning and the same intensity of that word look or scope, and he's saying, zero in too on other people's lives. It means getting into people's lives and finding out more about them so that we can ask specific questions about them. Not like, hey, how's work going? Rather, hey, how's work at KPMG going? Or how's that new position at Foster's going? Or whatever it might be. Sometimes, I was chatting with Laurent earlier this week, sometimes it means the world to someone if you just remember their name. I humbly apologize. I'm really bad about that. That's why I love Name Tag Sunday. It's not some arbitrary thing that we do. We do it so that we can pay more attention to each other and get to know each other more intentionally. Okay, but now let me tell you the bad news. There's absolutely no ways that we can do this. Right, amen, should we just go have some coffee? We cannot overcome the relationship issues and struggles in our church family, in our own families, in our, in our marriages, because we are all fundamentally flawed. Humility and selflessness doesn't come naturally to us. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have this fear that, well, if I'm paying attention to everyone else's interests, who's gonna pay attention to mine? And so what we do is then we, we close our one eye to what everyone else is going through and we zero in on our own interests. Or in our pride, in our, in our arrogance, we conclude, well, no one else is going through what I'm going through, or at least they're not going through it at the same level that I'm going through it. And so again, we, we close our one eye to what everyone else is going through. And either we, we back out of community completely, or we simply dominate the discussion. We don't ask how anyone else is doing, we make it all about ourselves. Even if the logic of the truth is that if we are all fulfilling what Paul is saying, if we're all paying attention to each other's interests, then we'll get copious amounts of love and wise counsel. But here's why we do that. Let me give you a verbal explanation and then I'll give you a very simple visual explanation. So the, the verbal explanation might get a little bit nerdy, that's why I'm gonna back it up with, a, with a, a, a visual explanation. But have a look at verse three again with me. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so you see those two seemingly insignificant words, from and in, right? Those are what we call in English uh, prepositions of place. Okay, don't fall asleep, it's very important. They tell us 
more about where something is or where someone is, right? I, I've just come from the shop or I'm in the shop. Spiritually speaking, they tell us about the spiritual place that we're in. Or we can say the condition that our hearts are in. If I do something from selfish ambition, it tells me a lot about the condition of my heart. So, here we go. If, that, if you kind of zoned out on that. So, here we go. This purple glass represents selfish ambition, vain conceit, or vain glory. And if we are in selfish uh, ambition and conceit, then this is it. This, this clouds our relationships, right? Let me, let me get Harry. So here's your friend Harry, and that's you, and you guys are best buddies, and you really want to pay attention to his interests, right? But it's constantly tainted or tinted by purple. You see that? Yes, I want to pay attention to you. Yes, I want to give you counsel, but, but I'm counseling through a purple tint. I'm counseling through my selfish ambition. I'm counseling you, yes, but I really want to pay more attention to my own interests because that's the place that I'm in. Yes, we're in a, a happy marriage, you and your wife, and, and, and things are going great, but it's still, that greatness in your marriage is still tainted and tinted by selfish ambition and vainglory because that's the place that we're in. Now, in order for us not to do anything from a spiritual place of selfishness and conceit, what we need to do is we need to change our spiritual preposition of place. Paul says we need to be in humility because when we're in humility, then he says we can consider others more significant than ourselves. Then we can consider, then we can pay attention to uh, not just our own interests, but to the interests of others. So how do we change? How do we change our spiritual prepositional place? Here comes the gospel. Look at the last point. We overcome relationship struggles by looking to Jesus. Look at verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see the new preposition of place there? Well, the NRV says it like this, in your relationships with one another, in your relationships with one another, Philippian church, or in your relationships with one another, with one another Sunrise Community Church, or in your community groups, or in your friendships, or in your marriages, or with your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or with your kids, or with your colleagues, he says what? He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, or say, have the same attitude as that of Jesus, which is what? Humility. Humility in its ultimate and purest and loveliest form is in the person of Jesus. We'll get into that more next week. But the ESV says, it's yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. In order to have humility, we need to be in a new spiritual prepositional place, which is in Jesus, who is the epitome of humility. Jesus never did anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He never looked to his own interests. In fact, John 6, 38 says that he, he came only to do the will of his Father. Mark 10, 45 says that he came not to be served, but to serve, which is phenomenal. Because Jesus, you're, you're God. 
how come you came to serve and not be served? Because that's what all the, the other rulers and, and kings in this world do. They, they force people, they want people to serve them. No, he came from glory. He humbled himself. He came from glory and put the best interest of sinners ahead of himself. Died on the cross for us so that we might be united to him, so that we might live like him. So let's say this is Jesus. So by faith in Jesus, the gospel says this. So by faith in Jesus, we are transferred out of our sinfulness, out of our selfish sinfulness, and we are transferred in to Jesus. So that we are now united to him. We have the fullness of Jesus at our disposal. We have the fullness of his humility at our disposal. But verse five says, you must have it. You see that? In other words, we must take hold of it. Yes, it's yours, but you've got to consciously take hold of this. We've got to partner with Jesus in our sanctification. We've got to partner with him in our spiritual growth. And then, sunrise, can you imagine what our relationships will look like if we take hold of this? It doesn't mean they'll be perfect because we're still growing. Sanctification is a process. We're still growing in this mindset. But what it definitely means is that our relationships won't be normal. This is normal. We were born into this. And now we've been born again into this. So they definitely won't be normal. They can't be if we're in Christ. They can't be if we're infused with his humility. It does mean that our arguments won't be as destructive as they used to be or could be. It does mean that our time will be used more wisely on things that matter, not pursuing our own vain glory. It does mean that we will relate to people according to the glory of God and not according to vain conceits. Because listen to me, doing things or relating to people out of vain glory or selfish ambition, God will oppose that. But when we begin relating to people and doing things by being in Christ, in this new position, in this new place, in this humility, God will bless us. God will bless those relationships. I'm not making it up. Have a look. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let's overcome our relationship struggles by taking hold of the humility of Jesus. And the promise then is that Jesus is with us because we're in Christ and we have the fullness of him available to us and humility. Amen.